Hello, and welcome to the Nomi Key Show. I am Nomi Key Konst. So police in Georgia say that they are not willing to label the slaughter this morning, late last night, of eight people, six of them Asian women, as a hate crime. So let's say it a different way. This was a hateful crime. It's hard to look at, but we cannot look away and we cannot settle for legalisms, cannot wait for investigations to be played out. So much of what is wrong in our world is visible in this ugly episode. Georgia State Representative B. Wynn captured it best. She said that the shootings appear to be the, quote, intersection of gender-based violence, misogyny, and xenophobia. I would add one more point. This was workplace violence. These workplaces provide massages and often other sexual services to their, co their customers. The workers were almost exclusively Asian women, a kind of workplace segregation we would never tolerate by most other employers. Robert Aaron Long was apparently a customer of massage parlors. He blamed the employees for his compulsion to patronize them. The suspect did uh, take responsibility for the shootings. Um, he uh, said that early on once we began the interviews with him. Um, he claims that these, and as the chief said, we know this is still early, but he does claim that it was not racially motivated. He apparently has an issue, uh, what he considers a, a, a sex fiction, and sees these locations as something that allows him to, to, um, to go to these places, and, and it's a temptation for him that he wanted to eliminate. Um, that, that, like I said, it's still early on, but those, those were comments that he made. This is madness, of course. It, it makes as much sense as an alcoholic killing a liquor store worker in retaliation for his alcoholism. But at least this rips open a conversation we needed to have for a long time. Work is work. Sex work is work. Much of sex work is segregated by race and forced underground. The most exploited in our society are also always the most vulnerable. The tragedy for these workers didn't start with their murders. It started years ago in a world of exploitation that drives them into a path that ended in their murders this morning. And maybe it doesn't even drive them into that path. A world where the police are not their protectors, but among their exploiters. The, the explanation the alleged killer gave to the police makes a kind of ugly sense in this world of dehumanization. He wanted to eliminate temptation, remove what he saw as a trigger to his addiction. <laughs> oh, how... <laughs> How white supremacist of you. Uh, given how little value we, we seem to hold these women in, well, sure, why not? Let's just eliminate them. Being inside the mind of a madman is not pleasant, but sometimes it is the craziest among us who see these things clearly. Hurt people hurt people. By his own account, he needed help he didn't get. Yet, six women are dead. Six Asian women are dead at the hands of a white man at a time when violence against Asian Asians is a stain on our society. And you can see that within this logic, this was, okay, not a racial crime, that was his logic. He killed them because he believed that they were sex workers, not because they were Asian. Did Robert Aaron Long kill these women because they were Asian or because he believed that they were sex workers or both? Either way, we cannot evade the most damning question of all. Were they sex workers because they were Asian? Or as Kenzo Shabati, friend of the show, put it in his newsletter today, quote, how can we say this killing spree has nothing to do with race as the targets were part of a racialized workforce? I understand the law has to be precise to be just. Maybe racism wasn't his motive or what he says was his motive. But racism is still very much part of this crime. 
To truly see and correct injustice, we need more than laws against hate crimes. And in the meantime, we need to protect our most vulnerable workers. Do you guys remember that article, that damning article that came out in the New York Times uh, a few years ago over the nail salons, of the conditions of the nail salons and how nail salon workers, Asian women in particular, uh, were being exploited and, and uh, trafficked to the United States and they were living in the nail salons and sleeping in shifts. It was a jungle moment as in the book, The Jungle, yet nothing has happened. Nothing has happened. It opened up a conversation and then another crisis happened. So I ask, what are we gonna do? What are we gonna do about this? Because it compounds so many different issues at once. Of course, Trump was blaming this crisis on the Asian community, calling it the China virus. We've seen, uh, we've seen the horrific attacks on people, Asian, the Asian community over the last year as a result of his spiteful, hurtful, insightful words. So how can we not think, naturally think that this is connected to that? And even if it's not, we should at least open up the conversation to do something about it simultaneously while talking about what it means to protect workers, all workers, not just the ones who work for big corporations, but those who are trafficked, immigrants, those who are, are working in inhumane uh, working conditions, and of course, sex workers. All right, we have a wonderful show today. Jordan Zacharin is here in our very own Simon Road. Are also, they're all, he's also here, and coming up right after the break, Lee Carter, Delegate Lee Carter, will tell us about his campaign to be governor of Virginia. I'm not wearing green, I just realized. Uh, happy St. Patrick's Day. No parades because COVID, but guess who came through for us on COVID? Uh-huh, okay. Well, we need to dismantle the system of exploitation that produced this hateful crime. And yesterday we called on ex-president Trump to urge his followers to get vaccinated after half of all Republicans were polled saying that they refused or questioned the vaccine, whether they're gonna take the vaccine. So last night, Trump urged his folks to get the vaccine, of course, that he's taking credit for distributing. And it's a start, it is a start. All right, we'll be right back in a flash. Welcome back to the Nomi Key Show. All right, guys, Sunset Lake CBD is a farmer-owned, a farmer-owned company. No Monsanto, no big business. They're farmer-owned company that ships craft CBD products directly from their farm to your door. Sunset Lake CBD has something for every everybody. Uh, they offer tinctures, uh, gummies, salves, which is helping me. I like have, you know... I had this like weird breakout on my arm the other day uh, and I was using it, it was very, it was, it was great. Anyways, they have salves, coffee, fudge, all designed to help with stress, aches and pains and it works. It was originally a dairy farm from the Ben and Jerry's and they decided to diversify and grow premium hemp there. Uh, customers, when they support Sunset Lake CBD, they are supporting sustainable agriculture that enhances rural communities and creates meaningful employment in the community. Their minimum wage is $15 an hour and employees own the majority of the company and they support independent media like the Nomi Key Show and the David Pakman Show and, you know, the Majority Report. I, uh, I was just talking about the salve. I don't know, like I'm on my desk all day. I don't know how I get it, but I get these like little bumps from uh, the desk. And so I put the salve on and I swear to God, the next day it was, it was 
better. I don't know what is in it, what happens, but uh, I trust it. It's natural. I just ordered more tincture. I was out of it. So for the last three days, I have not been sleeping well, but when I do put that tincture in my, my water or my tea, I sleep like through the night, deep sleep, have vivid dreams. Uh, it's amazing. I know Dorsey, you love the product as well. Yeah. I'm a big fan of the tincture too. I mean, everybody loves the gummies. It seems like, um, but Definitely. Uh, other than the gummies, um, the, the tincture is what works the best for me, uh, especially for like all my kind of like body aches and my ailments and stuff. Instead of, you know, using any kind of medication uh, over the counter stuff, I'll just go ahead and, and go with the tincture when I have it. So yeah, I can't wait to get some more of that. I actually have been behind on that. So I haven't been sleeping as well as I normally do because, you know, it just kind of like loosens me up. I have a lot of like cricks and cracks in my back and my neck and you know, it just makes sleeping so much easier when I have a couple drops of that. You know, I I get migraines. I talk about this. I have a lot of ailments. We all have ailments. It's like once you go past thirty five, or it's just it's just like constantly trying to figure out what, how you're going to treat your ailments, especially if you're sitting all day. Um, but I get migraines, and they've been happening more often lately. Maybe it has to do with computer time and COVID and stress. Who knows why? But um, they also have hemp, and I smoked some hemp. And it immediately, I know Dorsey's laughing at me about the hemp. <laughs> I smoked the hemp. <laughs> no, but it's true. I definitely like, I, you know, especially if I have a headache, as soon as I wake up in the morning, um, you know, I can still work. Uh, but it definitely like, I don't know what it does to my, my brain, but it loosens me up. <laughs> I actually have some of the, they have, it's like Keef, which is kind of like the powdered remnants of yeah. like when you, when you, when I'm grinding the other stuff. Um, anyway, and I've, I sprinkled it on some of, uh, of the other stuff when I've been smoking it and it's, uh, that's really nice. I just have been trying to cut back on smoking so much. That's why I'm, I'm, I'm all about the tincture and the gummies and stuff. Yeah. But when I, when I do, uh, you know, want to add a little bit of uh, relaxation and stress-free kind of like, it gets rid of the anxiety part of, of smoking the other stuff. Sprinkle a little bit of the, of the keef on there. It's great actually. I love it. I did not know that. All right. Well, now we all know. So go check out uh, Sunset Lake CBD at sunsetlakecbd.com. We have a promo code for 20% off of your entire order. You just type in NOMI, capital, all capitals, N-O-M-I. I'm sure they'd take it if it was lowercase too, but just put in promo code NOMI for 20% off of your entire order, sunsetlakecbd.com. We will be right back. But it's not divided between red and blue. It's not divided between big cities and small towns. Virginia is divided between the haves and the have-nots. One side sends their kids to choice private schools, while the rest of us send our kids to schools that are underfunded and crumbling. One side can afford concierge service from their doctors, while we're lucky to see a doctor at all. And when COVID-19 hit, they got massive taxpayer-funded bailouts for their businesses. We had to make do with thoughts and prayers. The more than 760,000 Virginians left unemployed by the pandemic. For too long, we've listened to career politicians and pundits tell us that there is no other way, but no more. In this primary, we can finally pick a governor that will fight for the rest of us, for the teachers and nurses, for shipbuilders, students struggling to make tuition. For everyone with a stack of bills on the kitchen table waiting to get paid, I'm running for governor so the rest of us can finally get what we need. We're so we can get what we deserve. 
I'm Lee Carter, candidate for governor, and I approve this message because a vote for me is a vote for the rest of us. Welcome back to the Nomi Key Show and welcome back uh, Delegate Carter. Lee Carter is, of course, uh, he represents the 50th District in the Virginia House of Delegates and he is running for governor of Virginia. So great that we finally got you on. I was, I was so thrilled when you announced. I was like, we need him on immediately. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me. How are you doing today? Doing wonder, as great as you can be uh, in the midst of this chaos. <laughs> <laughs> yeah so I, I i i have to ask um virginia's got like such a strange system to me i i, I feel can you explain just uh how how this gubernatorial race is is playing out like who's in it just sort of the logistics before we get to your candidacy yeah so first of all virginia is one of only two states that has major elections in odd numbered years um which is a voter suppression tactic uh you know conservatives long ago knew uh, that if they got their elections out of sync with the federal elections, that fewer people would vote in them. Um, so uh, that's that's one of the things that makes this odd is that it's just us uh, that, that has a competitive gubernatorial election. Uh, but the, the field right now, so we have a very crowded Democratic primary. Uh, you have me, obviously, uh, and then you have uh, former Governor Terry McAuliffe. <laughs> Um, which he's running for a non-consecutive term. Another weird thing about Virginia is yeah. that our governors are limited to only one term at a time. You can right. have as many terms as you want, but none of them can be back-to-back. -back. Uh, and so he's running to be only the second governor ever to get a second term. The first was uh, actually a segregationist named Mills Godwin. Um, so we've got former Governor McAuliffe running. Uh, we have uh, a longtime member of the, the state Senate, uh, Senator Jennifer McClellan running. Uh, we have uh, a, a former delegate who got elected in 2017 with me, um, former delegate Jen Jennifer Carroll Foy. Uh, and we have uh, the current Lieutenant Governor, Justin Fairfax, um, all running for governor. So it's a very, very crowded field on the Democratic side. There's even more chaos on the Republican side that I can get into if you want sure. to get time. For, for, I mean, this is the junkie show, so yes, please. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so on the Republican side, first of all, they've had a hard time even picking their nominating method. Uh, they, what do you mean by that? So uh, the, the parties are allowed to choose their nominating method. And the Democrats have chosen a state-run primary. Mm -hmm. The Republicans were trying to have a convention, and then they were told that they were not allowed to have a convention because of COVID restrictions. <laughs> uh, so they decided to have uh, what's called an unassembled caucus, um, which is where there's essentially just one voting site. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, they were trying to do that at a, a university in Lynchburg, but they didn't ask the university first. And so uh, <laughs> then that, that plan got rejected, and now they've got this weird hybrid um, unassembled caucus uh, with you know 30 or 40 some odd voting sites, which is still far too few for a commonwealth of eight and a half million people. Um, but they have a crowded field over there as well. They have a former Speaker of the House running for governor. Uh, their front runner is actually someone who describes herself as Trump in heels. Um, and she you know, took part in the insurrection on January 6th. And I had to ask the attorney general whether or not she was even qualified to uh, to serve in office um, under the 14th Amendment. And, and he yeah. basically said, well, that's up to the courts. Um, so she, she's being investigated right now? 
Uh, I'd be shocked if she wasn't under uh, criminal investigation for it. I mean, she had members of her personal bodyguard that were um, arrested uh, for their actions at the Capitol. Um, this, they were arrested for their actions at the Capitol while out on bail after being arrested, interfering with vote counts in Pennsylvania. Um, this, it is just absolutely wild what's going on here in Virginia. Um, and it's, it's a, a complete free for all. Is, is, the, is the situation on the Republican side an indication of the state of Virginia in terms of red versus blue? I mean, if the leader of the Republican side is, is a Trump person, whereas, you know, that's probably not going to win the group. I mean, maybe I'm wrong. I, I don't know. But I mean, I'm, I'm thinking like for, for folks who aren't aware, uh, Northern Virginia is very much like the Washington outskirts. It's the beltway. And so those folks aren't going to vote for Trump. Um, they're more likely to vote for the Democratic nominee or Trump's person in heels. Uh, I mean, is, is, is this sort of an indicator of like a failing Republican Party in Virginia and maybe even nationally? Well, you know, their their last nominee for U.S. Senate uh, was a guy named Corey Stewart, who oh, yeah. uh, was best known for his racist policies in Prince William County, um, which, you know, half of my district is in Prince William County. Um, but he also, um, a lot of people don't realize this, he was sort of the, the, the crystal that uh, everything coalesced around in Charlottesville leading up to the Nazi attack. Wow. Um, he was he was going down and holding these these torchlight rallies in Charlottesville around that monument of of Robert E. Lee. Oh, my in, God. You know, April, May, June of 2017. And then there was the big Nazi attack in <sighs> August, um, which had the same method and uh, just just much, much larger attendance. Uh, and so, you know, the, the Republican Party of Virginia has been off the rails for a while. Uh, they have not won a statewide election since 2009. Oh, wow. Uh, and and they're, uh, frankly, their, their chances of, of ever winning a statewide election again are very, very low, barring uh, some sort of massive political realignment. The problem is that we're overdue for a massive political realignment here in Virginia. Uh, and you'll have to excuse the train sounds. I live in Manassas. It's a railway town. I don't know if you can hear the horn or not. <laughs> we, we love the trains. It's all good. <laughs> but um, so, you know, Virginia's political history is one where you have this very ossified status quo, right? Where nothing changes for decades and decades and decades. And then all of a sudden there's a clean break, right? There's this massive surge of, of uh, you know, backlash against the status quo. And sometimes it goes in very positive directions, mm-hmm. uh, like with so. the readjuster movement, with, uh, you know, the, the, the uh, candidacy of Henry Howell, who was a lieutenant governor for two years and ran for governor three times and almost won. Mm-hmm. Uh, he actually almost won against Mills Godwin, the segregationist that I was talking about earlier. Uh, and sometimes it goes in very negative ways, like mm-hmm. Mills Godwin. Right. Um, and, and, you know, those, those two things tend to bubble up at the same exact time right. and you get elections where you're competing against, um, you know, a, a positive populism of, of people that want to do the people's work and, and, you know, break from the good old boys network and, um, you know, make the Commonwealth more small D democratic and make our economy work for more people. And you also get this sort of negative populism where it's all about scapegoats and racism and, you know, this person is the cause of all your problems. And we're in that kind of moment right now. 
And my my concern uh, with this election is that, you know, the Democratic Party nationally and in Virginia uh, in particular um, seems ill suited to deal with that kind of negative populism uh, coming from the other side. And so, um, you know, we can we can suppress it for a few elections, but eventually that dissatisfaction will bubble over and we have to either give people a positive creative outlet for that populist energy and, and return the Commonwealth to a government of by and for the people or deal with the, the violent, horrifying, racist consequences of not you know, providing that constructive outlet. That's really the consequence of, of this election on both sides. You know, it's interesting because uh, you do have these elections in off years and, and you were elected in an off year. And I remember when, uh, you know, you, you made major news. It was it was very. Uh, wasn't trying to. <laughs> it was good, though. It was good. Um, because I think you were, what, the first uh, at least nationally recognized DSA member um, elected after after uh, the uh, the primary, the presidential primary, of course, in 2016. Yeah. And I was the first socialist elected to any office in Virginia in over 100 years. That's amazing. Uh, the the you know from my research, the last time I was able to find a socialist elected to any office um, was the mayor of Brookneal, Virginia, which had a population of like 900, and it was in 1916. So, That's amazing. <laughs> yeah, quite uh, a revival. But yeah, you know, ooh. because of that. Um, there's 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 an opportunity without giving away a playbook to your opponents there's an opportunity when there is low turnout for mm -hmm. people to organize and not rely you know solely on i mean it does help sometimes on mass media and if you have that kind of integrated campaign model which you clearly did and and i'm sure you're doing now um it's, it feeds well with these populist movements right so I, you know i'm looking at someone like a terry McAuliffe, who you know very charming guy I've had drinks with him before. I'm sure you have too, or, or been around it. Uh, very, very charming guy. Uh, you know, he's definitely representative of the establishment, but my guess is he's probably going to rely on that like big statewide model that's less rooted in communities. So, so is this, you know, sort of, a, there's, there's, there's an opportunity here, given that, you know, there is going to be low turnout for someone like yourself to just really come in and, 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 and fight to win. Right. I mean, is that kind of how you're looking yeah. at it? And, you know, I, I don't mind playing with my cards face up. Right. So I'll just go ahead and talk about what we're going to be doing. <laughs> um, you know, I unlike the rest of the field, I understand that you're never going to raise more money than Terry McAuliffe. Um, you know, this is a guy who is personally tight with the Clinton family. This is a guy who his entire um, you know, the, the entire base of his power within the Democratic Party is that he raises a lot of money from massive corporations, mm -hmm. um, and so if I were to if I were to come up with ten million dollars, he'd spend twenty. If I came up with a hundred million dollars, he'd spend two hundred million. Right. There is absolutely no way to outraise this guy. He has essentially unlimited money. Uh, the rest of the field is trying to play the big money game with him, and frankly, that's doomed to failure hmm. um, because it's his game. He will always win it. And so my strategy is not to try to raise more money than Terry McAuliffe. It's never going to happen. My strategy is to raise just enough money to get uh, the word out there and to walk the walk and say, uh, you know, I, I'm fighting for the issues that you actually care about 
-hmm. And I'm talking about them in a way that you're not used to hearing politicians talk about them because it's not poll tested. It's not run through consultants. It's just me talking about the things that I want out of the Commonwealth. Um, and you know that I'm going to fight for them. You know, you know that I'm actually going to, to follow through because A, I have a record of doing just that, damn the consequences. And B, my entire political career, I've never taken a single dime from any for-profit corporation or industry interest group. And I never will. Mm-hmm. And in a state with unlimited campaign contributions, where- uh, Unreal. I yeah, can't believe that. Just let's pause for a second, yeah. digest that. Unlimited campaign. How is that possible? <laughs> well, there's only six states to do it this way. Um, Pennsylvania is one, right? I don't remember Virginia. the other five. Yeah, well, I've been <laughs> focused on this one. That's <laughs> <laughs> good. But, um, you know, we had a perfect example of this in 2019. There was a member of the House of Delegates, a, a libertarian right winger um, who didn't turn his paperwork in on time for reelection and had to run a write in campaign. But he funded his entire reelection campaign with a single check from a from an Illinois casino owner for a half million dollars. Oh my God! One check. Unreal. Um, and you know, there's there's no prohibition on corporations giving directly to candidates. Uh, the the only thing that they're not allowed to do is you're not allowed to accept contributions from foreign sources. But oh, okay. But if, a a federal multi, <laughs> but if a if a multinational corporation has a U.S. subsidiary that's just a post office box in Delaware, that's fine as long as it has the address in Delaware on it. Who cares, right? Does Virginia that have anything to do with no rules? Does that have anything to do with the fact that like there's so much um, military present? I mean the the. the is it, I mean, I'm just trying to think of like military personnel. Uh, obviously, the U.S. government uh, is has different offices situated in Virginia. Um, I mean, is, is this have anything to do with the military industrial complex? No. No, I don't think so. I mean, um, you know, we're, we're allowed to receive contributions from American citizens living abroad. Uh, mm-hmm. We're allowed to receive contributions from green card holders mm-hmm. uh, that, that live here in the state. So I've, I've gotten, uh, you know, I've gotten donations from people that are American citizens that live in Singapore or the Czech Republic or that have an APO or FPO address. Um, so I, I don't really think that has anything to do with it. Um, it's just that, you know, Virginia's political class is just so tightly uh, wound up with the, the business class in, in Virginia um, that they're really inseparable. And, and they just fundamentally, uh, you know, most of my colleagues don't see a problem with for example, Dominion Energy, the, the regulated right. electric utility here um, that, has a, that has a monopoly license to do business through 70% of the Commonwealth, they don't see a problem with that monopoly directly funding the campaigns of members of the General Assembly when we in the General Assembly are the ones who appoint people to the State Corporation Commission, which is the body that's supposed to regulate them. Right. Right? But um, there's, there's something ideological that it, it, it just doesn't click, that that's obviously bad. Well, people don't uh, want to face their, their own demons. Yeah. That is mind-blowing. So the thing that I don't understand, though, is, you know, Terry McAuliffe, prolific fundraiser, uh, 
one of the best in like history, uh, close to the Clintons, you yeah. know, but former head of know, the DNC. But uh, not very good at getting people to show up to vote. When he won in 2013, it was a record low turnout year. Interesting. He raises a lot of money and does not get people excited. Interesting. Um, so that was that that leads to my question is how are these other establishment types? How do they have the courage to run against him? Because, you know, I mean, it's different if you're progressive running against the establishment, but you know, they usually make sure that the field's clear uh, for, or maybe they will eventually, but is there some sort of dynamic happening that we're not aware of? Well, he and I both entered the race fairly late. Um, and when most of the rest of the field uh, was declaring their candidacies, it was expected that he would get a job in the Biden administration. Ah. And so um, he's actually the one that sort of upset the plan by, by running for governor again. Um, so, you know, I, I do kind of feel bad for, for some of the more establishment aligned candidates who didn't expect to have him in the field um, and were operating as though he was not going to run again. And then all of a sudden, uh, you know, he jumps in with $6 million cash. Um, if, if you're trying to play that big money game and a whale comes in after you, you're screwed through no fault of your own. Um, but again, you know, I'm, I'm not trying to play that big money game. Um, I've never taken a single dime from any for-profit corporation or industry interest group. I never have. I'm the only one who's never received a contribution from a fossil fuel company. Uh, even the other quote unquote progressive <laughs> candidates have taken money from, for example, Washington gas. Yeah. I'm the only candidate in the primary who's never taken money from organized police, like the Virginia state police association. I'm the only candidate in the Democratic primary who's never taken money from big banks like Capital One. Uh, there's only me and one other candidate who have never taken money from big tobacco. Uh, so, you know, I, I stand apart on the way that I'm actually running my campaign, but I also stand apart on issues. Uh, we had our first debate last night and mm -hmm. Terry McAuliffe didn't show up, which was appalling. Are you serious? Yeah, it was it was just the other four candidates. Interesting. Um, but, you know, we only had 60 seconds to talk about these issues, which right. um, when, you know, like me, you're a candidate who uh, approaches things in a fundamentally different way, like an mm -hmm. ideologically different way. It's really hard to explain that massive difference in 60 seconds. Uh, but take, for example, you know, we had a question about housing and mm -hmm. The other candidates said, oh, you know, we need to um, extend the grace period for repayment before the landlord can file an eviction. Uh, we need to, uh, you know, put more money in the affordable housing trust fund. And then it gets to me and I say, we need rent control. We need uh, good cause eviction laws. We need cooperative, owning, uh, cooperative ownership of multifamily buildings. Uh, we need a vacancy tax for uh, industrial yeah. land or for um, commercial landlords that have a, a lot of off-market properties, um, you know, and, and so on and so forth. And, and there's a real qualitative difference to the kinds of solutions that we're proposing. It's because they are proposing solutions that work within the existing right. framework. And I'm talking about the failures of the existing framework. And, and it just seems like this is a moment, you, you, you know, you talk about this in your opening video. Uh, these issues are connecting with voters that may not have even been open to them or yeah. understood that they were they're rooted in, in socialism or progressive air, old progressive era policies that folks are trying to bring back, um, you know, 
people are connecting the dots now. And I'm so, I'm, that's what I'm really curious about how folks that may be outside of your typical base, outside of the progressive wing of the Democratic Party or independents uh, or, or others even, I mean, maybe they're even Republicans who, who um, align with some of these issues in Virginia. But I'm curious if like you're noticing people that are outside of that ecosystem starting to understand because of this economic crisis, because of COVID, you know, the importance of having, you know, Medicare for all or, yep. or rent controls. Yeah. Uh, you know, two years ago, uh, we forced the Republicans to expand Medicaid back when the Republicans still had um, a very narrow majority in the House of Delegates. And that was a huge victory, right? We went from 800,000 uninsured Virginians to 400,000. Hmm. But because of the COVID-19 crisis, people losing their jobs, losing their health insurance, we're back up to 700,000 again. Ooh. You know, we're, wow. we're almost in the same boat that we were in when we expanded Medicaid. And so a lot of people are realizing, you know, holy crap, uh, these, these tweaks to the existing system, you know, trying to come into better compliance with the Affordable Care Act, mm -hmm. it's not going to solve the problem. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, they're starting to open up more to uh, ideas like a, a state-run single-payer single plan to guarantee not access, not affordability, but health care right? The ability to see a doctor when you need it and to not have to worry about a bill at the end. Right. Um, and when we're talking about, you know, even just more basic sort of fundamental questions about the economy, um, you know, one of the things that I've noticed a lot of leftists, uh, a lot of socialists fall into, one of the traps they fall into is using really academic language to talk about yeah. it. You know, the, the bourgeoisie versus the, the proletariat and all that. It's my pet um, peeve, Lee. I love but, that you're saying that. That's We try to do that on the show, like eliminate it. It's, right. you know, cause it's, you, when you're an organizer, you're gonna speak their language. Yeah, but but you can put it, you can put the same concept into terms that people are much more familiar with and much exactly. more comfortable with. And so, you know, when, when I'm talking about building a socialist economy in the Commonwealth of Virginia, I don't say it like that. What I say is, you know, a couple years ago, we gave $1.8 billion to Amazon. Mm -hmm. uh, would this. you rather keep doing that? Or would you rather I use that $1.8 billion and give some of it to you so that you can start your own employee-owned business? That way, instead of having a boss making decisions for you, it's you and your coworkers making the decisions together. And it clicks just yep. like that. You know, everybody knows they're getting ripped off at work. Everybody. So, um, can we, let's let's actually go back to that for a second because the Amazon fight was uh, was 2018 into 19. Mm -hmm. at the same time, the the uh, they were setting up the headquarters or attempting to set up the headquarters in Queens, where I live. Uh, they they set up was it a headquarters? I can't even remember now. In in Virginia, it was another headquarters in Virginia, and you were a key part of that fight. Um, can you talk about that? What what happened in Virginia? Yeah, you know, when they when they made their announcement, they were looking for a new headquarters. I said, you know, they're this whole thing is a sham, right? They were they were trying to play cities off of each other to try to, you know, get a bidding war going. But I, I called it right from the beginning. I said it's either going to be New York so they can be close to Wall Street investors, mm -hmm. or it's going to be Northern Virginia so they can be closer to the Pentagon and those sweet government contracts. Yeah. And what do you know? They said New York and Virginia. Um, and you know, they uh, they really were just trying to extract public money out of uh, both of our jurisdictions. Um, and I was one of a small handful of people that opposed it. We only had nine minutes worth of debate on the floor 
about whether or not to give them $1.8 billion in cash. Me? A cash tax breaks and infrastructure. We're building an entirely new campus for Virginia Tech adjacent to their, their headquarters, specifically for their workforce requirements. Nine minutes of debate. Nine minutes. And I had, you know, even some very far-right Republicans after that nine-minute debate, after they voted for the incentive package, came up to me afterwards. Um, I remember this one guy, Tim Hugo. Uh, he came up to me in, in the, the lounge off the House floor, and he said, you know what, Lee, I listened to what you're saying, and I think you're right. I think those people are screwed. I'm like, why the hell did you vote yes? <laughs> but, uh, you know, I, this is, it's, it's another uh, issue where I stand apart from the rest of the field because um, former delegate Carol Foy voted for it. Uh, Senator McClellan voted for it. Uh, and then... Um, you know, Terry McAuliffe bragged about the role that he played in putting the deal together. Uh, and yeah. Lieutenant Governor Fairfax uh, was part of the welcoming committee uh, when they made the announcement. So I'm the only one running for governor on the Democratic side that opposed giving them $1.8 billion to do something they were already going to do anyway. And have those jobs come? they haven't come for the people that, that were here when we made the vote, right? So most of, the, most of the positions that they've opened up so far have been filled with transfers. Right. Uh, so people moving in from Seattle, from uh, you know, Pennsylvania, from wherever, who already worked for Amazon. Um, and they're just sort of crowding into the same housing stock that was already too expensive in Northern Virginia. Uh, where I live, I'm about an hour away from the Amazon campus, but you heard the train whistle earlier. That rail line goes basically from my building to the Amazon campus hmm. uh, every day. And so even though we're an hour away, the rent in my building went up 18% in a month after that announcement. Before a so single shovel hit the ground, before a single person was hired, right. 18%. That's so interesting because I remember, um, you know, I live in Queens and so that's where the, the deal was supposed to take place. And I remember saying at the time, it's not just a deal with Amazon and 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 these supposed workers that, that are not going to be from the neighborhood. They're not going to be from New York, even though New York definitely has a skilled workforce for it. Um, but simultaneously, we no noticed that there, were, there was a rezoning around uh, a councilman there claims to be progressive, uh, you know, he, he was part of a rezoning effort there that went against the community board's interest. There's a, a way that we do this in New York. And as a result, all these high rises popped up and sure enough, the neighborhood changed. It wasn't just about Amazon headquarters. It was these, you know, expensive high rises mm -hmm. that were being bought up and rented up uh, by the workforce that was planning on coming to New York. And it was just as much a developer's deal as it was uh, a bigger Amazon deal, which of course the money did not go to things like the subway and schools and all the things that are being underfunded um, through austerity in our city. Um, Lee, I mean, uh, I could, we could talk for forever. Is, is, <laughs> I have so many more questions, so hopefully you can come on uh, again soon. But uh, if folks want to help you out in your campaign, if they want to contribute, if they want to, what are, what are your most urgent needs right now? Uh, we need people to give and we need volunteers. Um, you know, uh, if you can go to carterforvirginia.com, that's all one word. It's all spelled out. Uh, that website is available in four different languages, English, Spanish, Korean, and Vietnamese. Um, you can see uh, we have it up on the screen right now. There's a giant donate button in the top right. Um, and there's a volunteer button a little bit to the left of that. Uh, 
you know, three out of my four competitors in this primary have each cashed, you know, individual checks for more than a hundred thousand dollars. My biggest contribution so far has been four grand. My average contribution is $41. We're doing this the hard way, uh, but the hard way is the right way. And so I need all of your help. Uh, Every little bit counts. Um, We have trimmed all of the fat out of a political campaign that you possibly can. We don't have any of these high paid consultants Uh, You know, we're not wasting money on 30, 40, 50 pieces of mail. We're not going to try to do more TV than Terry McAuliffe. It's all extremely targeted. Uh, We know who we're talking to. Uh, We're trying to get people out to vote who have never voted in a gubernatorial primary before. Um, They are the cheapest people to reach, uh, but they're the hardest people to convince. Uh, So we have the message. We have the movement. We have the momentum, especially coming off of the tremendously successful debate last night. Um, But we need as many people as possible rowing in the same direction. So go to CarterForVirginia.com, grab an oar, start rowing with me. I love that. Uh, When's the primary? The primary is June 8th. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, we have 45 days of early voting. Um, and vote by mail. So, so that voting starts when? is starting very, very soon. Uh, I don't remember the exact first day. 45 days. All right. So very, very soon. folks volunteer because, you know, phone calls, if, I mean, I don't know what your field program is, but if you live in Virginia, around Virginia, in the Beltway, if you're willing to go to Virginia, go knock on some doors for Lee. Um, that's important. That's a really key yeah. part of this is early voting. Well, because of COVID, we're not directly sending volunteers out for face-to-face interactions, okay. but phone banks, uh, text banking in particular is a way to have a tremendous impact. We have a wonderful text banking system um, where you can, I mean, you can talk to thousands of people in an hour. Uh, so uh, by all means, please go to carterforvirginia.com, click that uh, volunteer button and that donate button. We need all the help we can get. Um, but if we can get across the finish line in June 8th, we'll be the odds on favorite for November. And we can really transform this Commonwealth into a place where wealth is common, where everyone can live and work and not have to worry about how they're going to put food on the table, how they're going to make the rent, whether or not they can afford a doctor or put their kids through college, or whether or not they're going to be discriminated against based on who they are, who they love, or who they were born to be. The stakes in this election are huge, not just for Virginia, not just for the eight and a half million people that live here, but it will set tremendous precedent for the other nine of 49 states as well. Um, We can transform this country uh, and we can make Virginia the first domino to fall. I love it. And and not to mention, you are a former vet. Let's add that to the mix too. I'm sorry I missed out on that. (laughs) You're the only one, uh, you're a veteran. You're the only one in the race that's a veteran Mm -hmm. as well. That's huge for Virginia. At least on the Democratic side. Yeah. So Virginia is... um, per capita, the most military and veteran heavy state in the union. Right. Um, and so, you know, this is actually part of my argument for single payer health care here. A lot of people think, oh, Virginia is this conservative state. You're never going to get that. But it's like, no, you know, we have the most military and veterans of any state in America. So we have the most people who have already been on a single payer government run health care plan and know that it's better right? Um, You can call it Medicare for all. You can call it Medicaid for all. You can call it TRICARE for all if you're trying to reach a military audience. I don't care. As long as we achieve universal coverage so that everyone can see a doctor and the bill is handled on the back end and you don't have to worry about anything. Absolutely. Lee Carter, thank you for joining us. Uh, Delegate Lee Carter, go check out his his campaign, go volunteer, give money if you can. If you have a million dollars, you want to throw him $200,000 or $500,000, he can take it. (laughs) As long as you're a good person. I would feel a little bit weird about a check that size, but 
you know. Who knows what rich well, socialists are watching our show? If there's any class traders out there yes. that, that just have it like that, I don't know. We'll, we'll take those on a case-by-case basis, I guess. Deep interviews. <laughs> just kidding. Hey, if Ben and Jerry's wanted, I'm just throwing this out there. If Ben and Jerry's wanted to, to, to give you $500,000, would you take that corporate money? No, no, no for-profit corporations whatsoever. Great answer. If, Look at that. If Ben and or Jerry wanted to give me money, sure. But Ben and Jerry's, absolutely not. There you go. You'd be in the pocket of, of <laughs> dairy or something. I don't know. <laughs> of, of socialist ice cream. Um, <laughs> Lee, thank you for joining us. Definitely appreciate it. I hope you can come on uh, after you in the primary and uh, we'll be celebrating. Thank you so much for having me on. I do appreciate it. Always. All right, everybody, we'll be back with our fantastic panel uh, right after this brief little break. Welcome back. It is Wednesday, and Wednesday means Jordan Simon are here. Uh, Jordan Zacharin, he runs the Progressives Everywhere newsletter. Go check it out. It's a Hot newsletter, I know. They profiled Matriarch. It was great. Got a lot of amazing uh, responses from the Matriarch profile last week. It's Women's History Month, of course. Uh, so everybody at Matriarch was really grateful for that. Thank you for, for doing that. And Simon Road, he is a former organizer for Bernie 2020, and he is part of Team TNS, the Nomi Key Show. Um, all right, this is a day that is... Uh, <laughs> Many of us woke up to news about the massacre that occurred in Georgia. And, you know, information still coming in. Uh, it was targeted against the Asian American community. Uh, but let's uh, let's play this video of Joe Biden and President Biden's response. Whatever the motivation here, I know that Asian Americans are in very, uh, very concern because, as you know, I've been speaking about the brutality against Asian Americans uh, for the last couple months, and I think it's uh, it is very, very troublesome. And uh, but I'm making no connection at this moment to the motivation of what the of the killer. I'm waiting for an answer from as the investigation proceeds from the FBI and from the Justice Department. Here's the thing: <sighs> he's talked about his motivations, but. You know, that requires, I mean, there, many things can be true at the same time. And also, uh, I, you know, psychologists, the FBI are not trying to figure out what the actual intent or motivation or deep-rooted motivation or deep-rooted bias. Why does it matter? That's what I want to know. Jordan, I mean, like, does any of this, is any of this going to change the outcome of the events and the conversations and what it, how it impacts society? I mean, there are absolutely racists out there who are going to see this event and, and feel empowered. Are they not? Yeah, it's, there's a weird, like, guilty until proven innocent thing when it's white men who do a thing oh, yeah. or do something wrong. Um, and, you know, when we talk about even, like, Andrew Cuomo, it's uh, obviously very different, but, you know, let the investigation happen. I mean, this 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 guy went and killed eight people, uh, eight Asian-Americans, and, and now the latest is that he's, quote-unquote, a sex addict who had a, quote-unquote, bad day. who's trying to get, uh, you know, trying to get rid of all the temptation, but he still went and killed Asian women, you know, he lives in Atlanta. There's lots of other people. He went and killed specifically Asian women. And uh, I don't know that, like, they're ever going to get, like, a note from him that said, I hate people of uh, who are of Asian descent. I don't think he's ever going to say, I did this because I hate Asians. So it's 
really frustrating when people can, you know, anytime a cop kills a person of color, they'll, you know, put out every single bad thing they ever did, every single parking ticket they ever did and said, look, this guy's a criminal, but they're, they're trying to protect the reputation of a guy who went and murdered eight Asian women who, uh, you know, because he supposedly felt tempted by them. I, I don't know what other answer you need. I mean, this is not just racism. Let's also discuss the disgusting misogyny. I mean, this is beyond misogyny. This is, uh, I mean, I, we should be having that conversation as well uh, about uh, it, not just the, that women were being targeted in a workplace and with power dynamics that, you know, whether they were sex workers or not, they were workers that were not protected, but simultaneously he was acting out because they tempted him, he says. Simon, like, yeah, as you guys have pointed out, I mean, it's it's definitely a case of where, you know, a, a white man goes and kills a bunch of um, Asian women and he's asked what his motivations were rather than looking at the very, like, obvious, you know, um, racism, you know, white supremacy, misogyny, uh, like anti-sex worker sentiment that's going on at play here, not just in the mind of the killer, but also in just like broader societal um, sort of attitudes. Um, and, and all of that contributes to, to what we're seeing here. It's not, of course, it's not an isolated event. I think sometimes even calling it a hate crime it does a bit to sort of isolate it as, as an individual case of, uh, of someone who is, you know, mean or bad um, doing something rather than like a, a whole structural problem uh, of the way that we treat Asian people in this country, the way that we treat sex workers in this country, the way that we treat women in this country. Um, and all of that comes, it comes into play here and it's all stuff we should be discussing. But what's really concerning to me is is where do where do we go from here? If we're if if the FBI or the police or whoever is going to publish his intent, what he says his intent is, let's make that clear. And 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 by the way, could very well be true. People are hearing that there are men, uh, I'm going to assume men who are having these fantasies about women, um, who. <sighs> I mean, it's it's hearing this story is is it's traumatizing. I mean, I'm I'm I can't imagine yeah. what women are feeling. I mean, it's it's traumatic. And then the fear is is, is whether it's copycats or other men um, who are going to see that and 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 act it out. I mean, I, I why is there no more responsibility around this? Go ahead, go ahead. I just was going to say, I think you were you were touching on something like really big. There is it's sort of the. I, I've heard like some uh, like Asian women speaking out today about how like the hypersexualization of Asian women uh, mm -hmm. is sort of the the beginnings of the sort of violence that um, that this can lead into, um, and yeah. So th th I mean that's a, yeah yet another piece that we should be discussing. Mm -hmm. I mean, Jordan. if you were to go and Google his photo, it, like if you were to like draw say hey draw me a white nationalist, it would be this guy. Um, yeah. So just looking at him, I don't think there's like a huge, I, you know, I don't want to say like just by looking at him, you can tell, but you know, there, he fits the profile of even just what they said about him, like loner guy who, you know, was frustrated and angry. 
And, you know, so I, you know, again, like we, I guess we can't officially declare one thing or another, but it's just so obvious that the environment that's been created by, frankly, and to make this political like Republicans and mm -hmm. continue to do so, continue the, the tough on China talk, the last year of racism. And it's just like everything else using racism, I guess, to block, uh, you know, to occupy the minds of people so they don't realize how badly everyone's being hurt and pillaged and ransacked and being fine with it, this being the outcome. You know, this is, you know, blood on their hands. And I think one other thing real quick is that there's racism everywhere in every country. The United States is the one, one place where there's continuous mass shootings like this. And I think that, you know, that gun control got put on the back burner, I think, when, uh, when Trump won. But the way people were arming up, especially this summer, the way white people, white nationals were arming up and, you know, trying to kidnap the governor of Michigan and just yeah. finding stocks of guns. I, mean, I think that's also an issue. Well, this is, I mean, we've had people on who study the rise of fascism and how these ecosystems brew and uh, and what's happening globally in these networks. And I mean, we have them here. Uh, we may not label them the same way they do uh, abroad, but they're connected. They're international, uh, internationally connected networks and they're facilitated online. They invest and pump money and audiences into right-wing shows. But one thing that has been very clear, we have these experts on and they've said it over and over and it was, is racism goes hand in hand with misogyny. It doesn't mean that miso misogyny can exist. Misogyny exists on the left, trust me. <laughs> but Racism and misogyny go hand in hand. And that Gretchen Whitmore um, uh, instance, I think, was, was spot on. Sorry to interrupt you, Namiki. Actually, there was one more point that I really wanted to make about this. Mm -hmm. um, that I was, you know, I know that um, one of the responses from Atlanta is to beefing up, like, the police presence at, um, like, businesses where there are a lot of, like, Asian employees and things like that. And I know that for a lot of people, maybe even some of our viewers, this sounds, like, really reassuring that the police are um, doing something about this. Um, but I, as I've heard from Asian people who I know personally and from people, um, like, activists and talking about how more police is never the solution to violence like this. The police did not keep people safe in this instance. Uh, it can be demonstrated even in the, the way that the uh, that cop from Atlanta was talking about how this guy had a really bad day and just basically playing PR for the shooter. Um, police are not the solution to this. And uh, we really need to be looking at ways that we can keep our communities safe. They, they took this guy peacefully and they killed George Floyd. You know, I think yes. that very clearly their priorities are not with the people of color that they're supposed to be protecting. Exactly. Exactly. Um, okay. So in, in, in good news, and hopefully it will be even better soon, uh, Representatives Pramila Jayapal and Representative Debbie Dingell have reintroduced Medicare for All. Very exciting. Uh, Pramila Jayapal says, we pay more per capita, per capita for healthcare than any other country in the world, yet leave more than 87 million people uninsured or underinsured. Today, I am reintroducing Medicare for all. It's time to guarantee healthcare to everyone as a human right. 87 million people in a country of 330 million people. Let that sink in. Uh, and I'm not even sure how accurate those numbers are to reflect the last year since the pandemic. All right, let's just play um, <laughs> reality here. Do we see a path to victory? Do we see a path to garnering these votes given the climate of the pandemic and the plans and the organizations and the support and the coalitions and all the things that come when you actually have to present a bill on the floor? Um, Jordan. 
You know, I think we saw that, all right, so speaking of the American Rescue Plan, just start off with the basics, it provides 90% of Medicaid funding, over $1.6 billion to states, even more than that, and you know, even bigger states. Texas, Wisconsin, all these other states don't still don't want to do it. Uh, Alabama, yeah, Mississippi has Double the worst health outcomes. Double incentives, too. Double yeah. incentives. It's insane. Yeah. Mississippi has the worst health uh, health outcomes anywhere, and they just take, Governor Tate refused to do it. And so, I mean, that would ensure, I don't know, like 5, 10, 12 million more people. Again, not anywhere good enough. But I think what it says is that there is still this resistance from the right and they need to be put, there needs to be pressure put on them to even accept this small modicum of help for until, to allow these things to become a reality. I think that uh, perhaps, you know, voter suppression, getting rid of that, getting rid of gerrymandering, putting these people at risk, putting their jobs at risk will open up a lot more avenues to getting something Medicare for all passed. You know, I, I will say that, you know, again, the rescue plan has money for COBRA, which is insane. Just put people on Medicare. But hopefully, you know, in the same way that the child tax credit is going, you know, hopefully going to be extended long term. I hope that the old, you know, old saying that you can't like take away a program from people, that proves yeah. true. And uh, we get closer and closer to that sort of demand where people realize, oh, wow, I don't have to worry about healthcare or spend all my money on it every single month. That's great. And attitudes start to change. But I think until all these lawmakers who do not fear for one second for their jobs, until they start fearing for their jobs, that is going to become, uh, that is when, that's when things might change. I mean, Simon, uh, sounds like a great strategy. The, you know, all the coalition groups, all the uh, people running against these these candidates, what, get a bunch of nurses on the front lines, get a bunch of people who've been hooked up to respirators who had no health care, um, who have, you know, uh, can, uh, families who've now dealt with their loved ones who have passed and have to deal with the costs of the health care costs from, from COVID. Put them in a bunch of ads and just say, your Republican representative is not supporting Medicare for all. He'd rather you pay out of pocket than the government, which has the money to do so. I mean, doesn't that seem like a, a path to victory right there? I mean, I, I feel like it's, the path to victory, I think is quite complicated. It's going to need a lot of different pieces to come together, right? Um, I mean, even if it does manage to pass like the House and Senate, there's always the problem of, you know, Joe Biden said last year that he would veto Medicare for all if it landed on his desk, right? Um, so much has happened since then. And, you know, I, I am open to the possibility that Joe Biden may be in a very different position today, um, just considering the state of the country. Uh, and I, I would love to see that happen. Um, I think that Pramila Jayapal and uh, I'm sorry, who's the other representative? Representative Dingle. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Dingle. Um, I, I think that they are starting from a really great position with a, a very aggressive bill with a two year rollout, uh, which is what we always wanted Bernie Sanders' Medicare for All uh, to be as well. Um, so I think starting here, you know, maybe they can even negotiate to a four year rollout or something like that. Um, there's ways that they can move from, from the starting position. I think that. Um, uh, it's really exciting, and I hope that it goes well. Just a reminder that Secretary Clinton thought it was all ponies and rainbows, uh, and I'd love to see that on a bumper sticker post-pandemic. <laughs> all right, um, this one's fun because we just love to hate them. Mehdi Hassan, the host on MSNBC, talks to Stuart Stevens about his project, the Lincoln Project, and how much... Uh, the, the, the founders made. Let's roll that clip. But I do have to ask you about the Lincoln Project while I have you, which in recent weeks uh, was rocked by allegations of a cover-up of sexual misconduct by one co-founder, side deals worth millions of dollars to its principals, 
plus a variety of other recriminations, accusations, departures, resignations. Uh, last month, Kurt Bardella, who was a Lincoln Project advisor like you, tweeted, quote, just shut it down already. Wow. It's over. And another ex-advisor, Susan Del Percio, she told me on this show last week, well, have a listen to what she said. The Lincoln Project, well, I think, I don't know how it survives this. This is, again, this reporting just shows how dysfunctional the Pro Lincoln Project has become. The people at the top are disappointing, to say the very least, and I just hope they're not found to be criminals. Stuart, Stuart, your own former advisors are hoping you're not criminals and calling for you to be shut down. Where does that leave your organization? <laughs> I just, look, uh, I couldn't disagree with that more. I think it's an absurd allegation. Um, look, um, the Lincoln Project is the most successful super PAC in the history of America. These guys, and, and they wrote an op-ed and a movement showed up. They have millions of supporters. They have over half a million donors. Um, they've had a tremendous impact in where we are now. And I think that this idea that um, somehow or another that you expected the Lincoln Project to be something that would be like a, a perfect organization is unrealistic. This is an organization that had 10 people oh, at the come end on. of oh, May. Come on, Stuart. Stuart, come on. There's a big difference between being a perfect organization and, and what the accusations, very serious accusations, that have been That's leveled right. against the Lincoln Project. You know that. Let me talk, please. There is uh, a report that's being investigated about what happened with John Weaver. I think that taking that step shows that they believe in transparency. Let's see what that report says. But the Lincoln Project is something that is bigger than any one individual. It is really something that has become a movement that is a pro-democratic movement. And I look, there's a lot of people that never liked the Lincoln Project, never liked the way we operated. The fact that we didn't spend, you know, believe that we, uh, millions and millions more dollars spent on advertising in one market would make the difference. We believed in asymmetrical warfare. We destabilized the president of the United States' campaign. I think that what we did, the effectiveness of it speaks for itself. Okay. And that's gonna continue. <laughs> all right, so I have a theory. I'm gonna throw it out there. I'm not saying what happened is like, listen, all uh, many of these political institutions, once you pull back the curtain, you'll see that they're not the best people in the world. Uh, you know, not every, but but, but many Some of them. Some politicians are not the best people in the world. <laughs> You're not, they're not unique. But I, you know, I remember right after uh, the election, people were worried that these Republicans were essentially taking Democratic data and were going to move it into maybe a revival of like the centrist Republican movement to kind of fight off Trumpism. I'm not sure where this all came from. Um, and of course, these allegations are very real. Uh, but I feel like this is the death of that, like revival of the centrist Republican, co whatever it was. Um, Jordan, what are your thoughts? Uh, y'all say this, you know, the reason I hated the Lincoln Project, it wasn't because of their annoying ads. It was because it made it so much harder to raise money for actual progressive candidates. You know, they, they're welcome to go do their ads and, you know, be smug on TV, whatever they want to do. I mean, they shouldn't be harassing people or stealing money, but they made it so much harder. And that I do that with the newsletter every week. I did it, you know, with candidates all the time. I'm now working with the candidate for Senate. It's so much harder to raise money when they make these slick ads because they know what they're doing. You know, they 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 helped George Bush's campaign hoodwink people twice. Uh, so that's what I really hate them for. They made it so much more difficult. They raised eighty million dollars or something like that. I mean, they stole like a quarter of it at least, but they raised like eighty million dollars that could have gone to Democratic and progressive candidates had people just really realized. And the problem is, you see, Mehdi Hassan, who is you know did a good job uh, grilling him there, but those people, Steve Schmitz on. MSNBC all the time. 
You know, they are being platformed by plenty of big corporate media organizations that gave them that opportunity to do so. They didn't just appear, they were given all the opportunity in the world. And so my bone to pick of them, other than, you know, them enabling a sexual harass harasser or uh, worse, is the fact that they debilitated in a lot of ways, a lot of democratic campaigns and progressive organizations. And they're not the only ones. There are other groups oh, that sure. are modeled similarly doing the same thing. And you, you sit there and you say, I mean, I'm part of an organization that is involved in fundraising. I've run on camp, you know, worked on campaigns and had my own campaign. It is so hard to build these lists. As you know, Jordan, it is so hard. It requires so much money up front and the right messaging and targeting. And you have to have the consultants who know how to do that and like blah, 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 all this stuff. And they just swooped in i mean it was and a lot of people on twitter the internet were saying well they're fighting trump it's fine with me because there's this un like this inability to like realize that there's other parts of the country and there's other races that need to be won and you know republicans voted for trump more than they did in 2016 so i don't know how much they were helping getting you know maybe independent voters good democrat but they debilitated the rest of the it wasn't just them there's a lot of mistakes made by democrats but you know they did not help matters that's for sure simon yeah is this the end of the lincoln projects well, fingers crossed, right? Uh, I love I love how he was like uh, demonstrating like the, they were the most uh, like effective super PAC ever or something like that uh, by saying how many donors they had or how many donations they've received. When it's like, okay, well that maybe is a sign of like a very successful grift, but like I don't know. <laughs> successful for whom? Successful ever for whom? I, I think it's, it's, I really feel like I, I'm mad at the Lincoln Project, obviously, but I can't, you know, it's like, if it weren't for, the, if it weren't them, it would be someone else. Like, there's always yeah. going to be someone who's grifting. Uh, and I think I'm more mad at like the media and uh, just like the broader political space for saying that being anti-Trump was like, the only thing like if like that was the benchmark for like um good politics and it allows the lincoln project to show up and that's their only thing and lo a lot of people just jumped on board and handed over their money to to something they never got no returns from i mean my my republican family members who voted for biden didn't do it because of the lincoln project so just if, if that was the strategy like biden was the anti-trump um i think any democrat that would have won maybe with the exception of Bernie, my family would have voted for my Republican family members, which is a whole other boom doggle that we can talk about. But um, Jordan, you were gonna say something, go ahead. I was just gonna say that, you know, Simon's right in the sense that it would have been someone else. And I think there's a lot of education to be done on the left with, or yeah, maybe not on the left, but with democratic voters who realize like the enemy of your enemy doesn't have to be invited over to uh, steal from your, your house. You know, it's, it's you know, you can say, hey, good luck, thanks, we appreciate that, let us know. But they did a lot of these just commercials that were just so soothing to, you know, resistance liberals that they felt like made them feel smart, made them feel like they were superior. And it was, it raised so much money and it made, it was like a real, I think like a real status symbol. You know, we got Republicans on our side because it's an inferiority complex, I think for people who are, uh, you know, mainstream Democrats, so. It's, yeah, hopefully this ends. Um, last, I, I, I couldn't do a show <laughs> without touching on Andrew Cuomo, Governor Cuomo. Um, I said last week, I think it was this day last week that if Senator Gillibrand, and Senator Schumer spoke out, and and Joe Biden said he needs to step down, then he would step down. Since then, Senator Schumer and, and, and Gillibrand, of course, which have different constituencies, then it's a complicated dynamic, right? Um, they have called for for Governor Cuomo to step down. Uh, there have been more allegations, you know, since then. Um, Joe Biden, 
President Biden has said that if there is criminal, you put that up on the screen, if there is criminal conduct, the investigation proves that there's criminal conduct, then yes, he should step down. Let's play that clip. Let me ask you about Governor Cuomo of New York. I know you've said you want the investigation to continue. If the investigation confirms the claims of the women, should he resign? Yes, I think he'd probably end up being prosecuted too. But you, how about right now? You've said you want the investigation to continue. You saw uh, Chuck Schumer, Senator Schumer, Senator Gillibrand, majority of the congressional delegation don't think he can be an effective governor right now. Can he serve well, effectively? Well, that's a judgment for them to make about their state where they can be effective. Here's my position. It's been my position since I wrote the Violence Against Women Act. A woman should be presumed to telling the truth and should not be scapegoated and become victimized by her coming forward, number one. But there should be an investigation to determine whether what she says is true. That's what's going on now. And you've I, been very clear. If the investigation confirms the claims, he's gone. That's what I think happens. And by the way, it may very well be there could be a criminal prosecution that is attached to it. I just don't know, but let the investigation, and I'm not, I, I don't know what it is, but I, I started with the presumption. It takes a lot of courage for women to come forward. Some are not, anyway, it takes a lot of courage to come forward. So the presumption is it should be taken seriously and it should be investigated. And that's what's underway now. So hang on one second before we, we I want to, let's just play out how this normally goes down. My guess is, President Biden, who has a very good and strong relationship with Governor Cuomo, probably called up Governor Cuomo and said, let's have a talk. If you are not planning on stepping, I have to say something. I'm going to be asked, we are being asked. So I'm going to give you the heads up that I'm going to say, and, and, and I bet you that they, the terms were negotiated to that. And, and, I, and my guess is Biden also went a little bit further saying, yeah, he's probably, there's a little bit of a gaffe there too. Um, but that's how that usually goes down. You don't just, you know, if you're, if you're that high up, you're not going to like completely come out and, 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 you know, with your friends, somebody who helped you win uh, multiple, you know, he campaigned for him, very hardcore. Um, Jordan, you're a New Yorker. Yes. You've been writing about this, thinking about this, talking about this. What are your thoughts? Um, well, you know, what I can't imagine is an investigation come back that says he didn't do it. I mean, he's admitted to it. There's text messages. There's so many people quotes. There's so many people who came forward. The investigation is only going to be make it worse. They're going to only turn turn up more things. And so if he wants to wait until then, like there's not going to be, oh, yeah, those uh, five of the seven women were just kidding. They, they were making it up. And so I don't know why an investigation, other than maybe buying him time and hoping that the public moves on, that's not going to be good for him. Uh, in terms of you know support from Biden, you're right, he did you know did go hard for the mat for Biden, but I don't think uh, it's for you know I don't think it serves Biden any advantage to protect Andrew Cuomo at this point. Like there's no big constituency, he won't be pissing off the left. He certainly won't be pissing off you know most of the Democratic Party. He's not he's not take, going out on a limb and you know uh, going over Chuck Schumer and cursing Gillibrand's head. Um, you know, you got to remember Chuck's, uh, which got it. Joe Biden also had his own little, not exactly the same, but kind of kerfuffle about the way he uh, spoke to or touched women. And so he has to be very serious about that as well. If he started defending Cuomo, I think people might bring up his own past. In the end, though, that was still defense. Let the investigation play out. And um, Simon, you know, you, you've, you've been watching the show, obviously, and I've talked about how we're also in the middle of, of budget time. And so the undercurrent of all this is I have a theory that a good chunk of Albany, even people who have called for him to step down, 
don't actually want him to step down until if he steps down until after the budget is is negotiated. Not because they don't. I mean, of course, I, I think like ideally, a lot of Democrats don't want to deal with Governor Cuomo in budget negotiations, but like in the midst of it would send Albany into absolute chaos. And so you have Carl Hasty, the assembly speaker, who said, okay, we're, we're putting together the impeachment proceedings. There's two investigations in, in uh, Attorney General Tish James's office, one for the nursing home scandal and one for the sexual uh, harassment and assault allegations. Um, but at the end of the day, he still might step down because like the process, the, pro- the process might give cover to Albany and, and the budgetary stuff, um, but he still might have to step down. I don't know. What are your, what are your thoughts? <laughs> just throwing yeah. out some conspiracy theories here. I, I love your theories. I mean, I always like feel like I want to defer to you when it comes to specifically New York politics and Andrew Cuomo um, and, and what might be going on behind <laughs> the scenes there. Uh, I, what I can speak to is like the moral standard that I feel like we ought to hold a president to, uh, which is, you know, we, we should see the president as sort of being I, I don't, okay, actually, I, I don't fully believe this, but I know that the idea is that the president ought to be like the moral compass for the country, right? Or ought to be um, taking strong moral stances on important moral issues like the one that we're seeing right now uh, with Andrew Cuomo. And this is, um, and, and Joe Biden seems to, not just only in this case, uh, for the reasons that you have just brought up, but I think also in a lot of other things, Joe Biden just seems to, to be like, oh, well, well, that's for them to decide, or, you know, that's for so-and-so to say, um, or like, we're just going to wait and see what comes out of this. You know, he is refusing to take a stance at a time when people really need him yeah. to be, right? Um, you know, a lot of uh, women who are, um, you know, victims of, of sexual harassment in their workplaces and things like that uh, would really be looking to our president right now to to stand in a defiance of a Andrew Cuomo and stand with the uh, people who are accusing him. So uh, we're not seeing that. And I think that is like, you know, regardless of everything that, that is probably actually going on, that's what, um, that's what I would like to be seeing. And that, that's the that's sort of frustration I have with Biden. I mean, it's an old tactic that, you know, if you wanna, if you wanna kill something, take it to a committee, put it through more process, 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 right, Jordan? Yeah, of course. When I, when I said I think Biden, you know, can't unharden him, I, to me, it was like he was sending him down the plank. You know, there's not going to oh, be yeah. a world in which he and Cuomo comes out clean on this. And I think it'll be sooner rather than later. Um, so, yeah, I think that I would have liked Biden to say, yeah, he needs to resign. I think that there is definitely going to be, you know, the investigation. And I don't think Tish James really likes Andrew Cuomo. Tish James, of course, the uh, the uh, she owes general. her position to him. She does, but she was always a working families party person. I don't think she owes. She probably sees her. Uh, I don't well, know. I think she, split. They, they, well, they, yeah, of course. Before that, though, yeah. I just think that, you know, I wish Biden had come out in favor of him resigning. I think that, you know, eventually uh, he will have to walk the plank. And I think that when you talk about the state government, you're, I think you might be right in the sense that some people don't want to force him to resign. They don't actually want him to resign. He's been so obnoxious and difficult when it comes to the budget. Perhaps he's going to try and be a little more giving and see if they can get their support. So I, I can imagine just pure politically in terms of funding, in terms of taxes, in terms of, yeah. uh, you know, lots of other stuff. I can imagine the legislature using this, hanging this over Cuomo's head for once. Finally, they have some power and making life difficult for him. And then maybe and then be done with him. Yes. And then exactly. It's kind yeah. of it's so poetic. I mean, having for the last decade, at least, uh, uh, I mean, he he's obviously been involved in politics since his he managed his father's mayoral race when he was in his late 20s. Um, 
the man is difficult. <laughs> it's yes. a, uh, loyalty is earned. It is not through fear and hate. Uh, if there's one leadership lesson, that's the one you stick with, right? They, you know, they say it's better to be feared than liked, but the thing is like when the fear is gone and everything's you're an asshole, then, you know, you're, you're in trouble. That's it. All right, everybody. Thank you for sticking around for an extra long show. This was fun. Uh, and for giving in on my, my, I knew, I wanted to talk about Cuomo with Jordan because you've been talking like we've got to talk. <laughs> no, I'm always right. happy to talk about it. I, I don't want to, you know, I don't want to like gloat or revel in it because a lot of women were hurt um and what happened but to see him go down will be a sweet day whenever it does happen yes it was it's going to be an interesting day and kathy hochel who uh i grew up around in buffalo new york uh she represented in our the district i grew up in uh she's our congresswoman and she was controller so anyways it'll be interesting to see how that plays out as well jordan zacharin simon road thanks for joining us let's do some shout outs look at these shout outs we have thank you to Oh, goodness, guys. Chai Bureaucrat. Got it. Chai Bureaucrat. Uh, for all the cheer on Twitch, thank you. I love it. Uh, Riley Cool says, hey, Nomiki, Matt Bender put up a new scandal regarding Cuomo, a serious one, an upstate town water crisis. Look on Bender's YouTube channel. Note from uh, this. Okay, got it. So this is an old scandal. Um, Blake Zeff. Blake Zeff is, is fantastic. He you know, he has definitely faced the wrath of Andrew Cuomo. Uh, Blake Seff has done a lot of work around report, worked as a reporter covering Andrew Cuomo. Um, go check that out if you have a chance, but it is it is from 2016. Thank you to Professor Harvey Kay, who's mixing it up in the live chats as usual. Uh, he will be on the show on Thursday. That's tomorrow. We have a lot to talk about. It'll be exciting. We're gonna compare Joe Biden to FDR because the Joe Biden uh, administration thinks that he's better than FDR already. I don't know. I feel like we have a we have a debate there. All right, he's going to join us tomorrow, so check us out tomorrow. And thank you to Midi Docs and Mario for working those algorithms. Huge thank you to Bob C. Choke and the Orb and Chuck Diesel in YouTube as our moderators. We need those moderators. Always so grateful for moderators. And over at Twitch, uh, a difficult truth. Dorian Sapiens, our means. Nug Wrangler and Dorsey's fave. It's not his fave. I'm just joking. Nightbot, <laughs> who is, I guess, a bot. I don't know. I'm really confused now. Uh, thank you guys. We will see you tomorrow. Stay in solidarity. Same time, same place. 